Acts 1. Recap, Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected, comes to his disciples, spends 40 days with them, speaking, sharing, instructing about some important stuff. His resurrection and the kingdom. That's what he talks about. Those are his focuses, right? He ascends up into heaven. And then the 11 disciples, it says, just were staring up at him like, all right, they're just staring. (laughs) I read this study, it's one of my favorites. It says that we waste 1.86 hours a day. The biggest waste, if you added, you know, looked at them all, the biggest waste is staring blankly at a computer screen. When I read that, I was like, oh, praise God, it's not just me, right? I'll be like, what am I doing? Like, how long have I been staring at this? Why was I here, right? Happens to everybody, I guess. So that's what they're doing. They're just like, ah. And then two angels show up. They're like, why are you guys doing that? I don't know. We didn't know what else to do. It just felt like we should be doing this. So they're like, hey, he's going to come back. Jesus will return in this same manner. Very important. He's not gonna show up secretly in an apartment in Brooklyn in 1914. That's not how Jesus returns. It will be like lightning in the sky. It's gonna be Revelation 19. It's not gonna be a secret event. If you're a believer, you're gonna know about it, all right? So that's what these angels say. He's gonna come back like that get busy with what you're supposed to be doing. So picking it up, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, about 2,000 cubits is what they estimate. And when they had entered, they went up, 2,000 cubits would be about 3,000 feet. So, yeah. When they had entered, they were, no one used cubits, do they? Like, I want a 4,500 cubit house. Would you build that for me? And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. I can tell I'm a Bible nerd now because I'm using cubits as a way to reference, man, this is bad. I'm just thinking that through in my mind as I'm reading, like, I just used cubits instead of like feet. Hmm. Verse 13, it's Valentine's Day. Expect this. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers." We're gonna see something and it will be repeated over and over in the book of Acts. And it's one of the most beautiful things I think that there is about the church. And it's something that we have to embrace when it comes to actually being what the church is. And the reason why I say that is because there are these growth experts that will come in and help you like grow your church bigger. And they have a principle that they say is very important if you wanna grow a big church. It's called the homogeneous principle. And what it means is this, you need to target one group of people. And remember, church growth people are not about the health of a church or how biblical a church is. They're about how big a church is, 
right? So they say, if you wanna grow a big church, then target one group, educated people or uneducated people, rich people or poor people, right? Uh, Young people or old people. Target one group because birds of a feather flock together. And that's how you grow a big church. I could not disagree with that more. I think that is the exact opposite of what a church is supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be this eclectic mix. I love on a Sunday, when I look out at the congregation and I see a young man that I know is just getting off drugs and he cannot sit still. He is fidgeting around. He is just doing just everything that a guy does when he's coming off drugs. And he's sitting right next to Mr. CEO business guy who keeps checking his wallet. Yeah, it's still there. All right, I'm good. That's the healthiest thing in the world. Because CEO business guy needs to know Jesus Christ sets people free from addiction and drugs. He needs to know that. And if you're a poor person, it's very nice to know somebody who's rich. Part of that is like, how do you spend your money? A lot of people are poor, not because they haven't had money or access to it. It's just, man, they get money. It's just like, let's go spend it. They're like, my kids, my kids do not save money well. It's like, if they have money, they wanna go spend it. So like the mixture is what makes the church so strong that we each need each other. It's 1 Corinthians 12. Like the, the diversity of the body is what makes it incredible and beautiful and wonderful. And I love it. And Revelation says in heaven, it's not gonna be homogeneous. It's gonna be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It will be made up of the broad spectrum of what is humanity. And it's brilliant. And you see it actually in the disciples. I think Jesus chose his disciples looking at all the different strata. And there's two guys here that, man, <clears throat> more than anything else, they show you how he was going really to the edges of what was culture at that time. The first is Matthew. What was Matthew? A tax collector. What's a tax collector today? IRS, good. Who loves the IRS? April 15th's coming. So here's, in his day, Israel was being ruled by Rome. The way that Rome got money from the provinces was to get people to betray their country and to work for them and to collect the taxes from the people, skim off the top and then give Rome their share. So really, he'd be like a guy that left America and joined ISIS to fight Americans. That's what he is. He's despicable, right? Tax collector was the lowest of the lowest of the low. So you got Matthew, he's, the, he's this side of culture. Then it says, Simon the Zealot. If you know your history, in Israel, there's a group of people that they were, get your guns, pack some ammo. We're the freemen here. We're gonna throw off Rome by violence and just any way necessary, doesn't matter what happens, we are going to fight and destroy Rome. So when you think about those two guys, who isn't gonna get along in the 11 disciples, right? I think Jesus said, you guys stay together, right? Simon the Zealot, he's Robin Hood without the tights. And Matthew, he's, you know, the guy that's got all the money and taking it from people. And Jesus says, I want both of you guys on my team. 
And I love the fact that Jesus is the kind of person that attracts both sides. Not just, hey, the gun-toting conservative, but also the liberal over here, right? The liberal tax guy, it's both. And so I had this conversation with somebody at a lumberyard of all places. He's like, hey, you know, would, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat? I'm like, oh, well, I just want a two by four. All right, well, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> I said, if you look at Jesus and read Jesus, the conservatives will get irritated about how Jesus talks about money. And the liberals will get irritated about how Jesus talks about morals. He gets us both, right? And both of us need it because no one's perfect. So Jesus keeps drawing us into the center of what it means to be a real, true human. And it's not the, the edges out there, it's coming to him over and over and over and learning what it means to be a real human. So Jesus here just gets this eclectic mix of people because that's the way things are supposed to be. He brings in women. Jesus elevated the status of women 2,000 years ago, right? They were second-class citizens, essentially. And wherever Jesus went, women were there. He talked with women. He cared for women. He wasn't afraid of women. Like, oh no, I can't be seen alone with you. Like he doesn't do that. He has a really, really magnanimous way of elevating women. Who discovers the empty tomb? Women. And now that maybe doesn't seem like a big deal to you today, but 2000 years ago, a woman could not testify in court. Do you know why? You just can't trust them, man. They're hysterical. I don't mean funny, they're just hysterical. Who can trust a woman? That was literally the reason why you can't trust their testimony because they're hysterical. So Jesus orchestrates his, the, the most important event in history. Who's gonna discover it? Women. Women will. Why? Because he's elevating them and they're here together in this room with these men. It's awesome, right? And then his siblings. His brothers are now in this room, waiting as Jesus instructed them to. That's amazing. Who here grew up with siblings? Who here ever thought, my sibling is the Messiah? <laughs> right? <laughs> no one did, man. My older brother was mean and tough and nasty. I never thought he was Jesus Christ. One time I actually said, I think you're the Antichrist, right? <laughs> So this is massive. His family says, yeah, he, he's Messiah. He's God in the flesh. And we're waiting for what he said for us to do. How brilliant and beautiful is that? And they're all told to wait. Anyone here like to wait? Anyone go to the DMV and see the number is like 23? You push the button, you get 97. You're like, yes, five hours here, awesome. Yesterday, I had jury selection where I went and, and it said, set aside the whole day. And I'm thinking, no way will it take all day. Oh yeah, it takes all day. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? How long is this gonna go for? And then, then you've got like, it was, it, was, it was a case study in humans because there's a guy in back who just wanted to talk. Like he must raise his hand and for every question, I'm just like, oh buddy, just be quiet. Just let this thing go. Who cares, man? <laughs> they already know enough about you. They felt this big packet of paper. And I was like, oh, it was insane. I don't like to wait. So these guys are told, wait, wait. 
Jesus never told them what to do. What did they do? It tells us. They devoted themselves, verse 14, to prayer. How interesting is that? He didn't say, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem, get an upper room, and I want you to pray there. He says, go wait. And they on their own say, hey, if we're gonna wait, we should pray. Hey, good idea. I think that's a really great principle. If you're waiting for a job or college or married or direction or guidance or whatever it is, make a list of what you're waiting on and pray. And pray. It's awesome. Isaiah 26.3 says this. It's one of the coolest little verses. It says this, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts God. Prayer to me is the active proof that you actually trust God. If you really believe God is in control and he's able to move the hand of whatever it is or make things happen for you, then we've been told, ask. If you really believe those things, then guess what you'll do? You'll ask, right? My son Myron asked me for all kinds of things. Dad, can I have this? Can I have a 22? Can I have a shotgun? Why does he say that? Because he believes that I'm a good dad and I'm able to do it for him. These guys believe, hey, we should pray because he's able to move whatever needs to be moved and we're gonna ask him and they pray. Great principle. So verse 15, in those days, these 10 intermediate days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. At some point, I will talk about inspiration, but that is a fantastic way of talking about how we got scripture. By the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. Great name for like a heavy metal Christian band. Do you think? We could call this one Akeldama. That is field of blood. Okay, couple notes on this. You got Peter and Judas in this little text. Aren't they opposite sides of the same coin? They're the two that on that fateful night, they fail the worst. One betrays, one denies three times in a row. They're the worst. And yet 40 days later, What radical, radically different outcomes in these two individuals. One commits suicide and the other becomes the leader of the early church. So why, right? Why? It's like Peter knows that proverb that says, a righteous man will fall down seven times, but he will 
get back up. They don't stay down. A righteous man will fall down seven times. It's not about falling down. It's about what you do next. So why does Peter seem to get up and Judas doesn't? I'll give you a couple reasons, I think. Number one is they experience very different sorrow. So Peter wept bitterly after his denial. Judas went back to the high priest and was like, you know, he was sorry too. But there's different kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to life without regret. Worldly sorrow brings destruction. So it sounds like they're the same thing. There's both, both people are sorry or guilty or ashamed or whatever it is, but one leads to really good things and the other one leads to destruction. To me, that's exactly what you see here. So what's the difference in them? Let me try to explain it like this. One of my daughters, when she was four, she loved candy. She came home from a friend's house with his bag of candy. It was about dinner time. So I said, sweetie, I don't want you eating that candy before dinner, save it. Well, five minutes later, I look over. She's got chocolate on the side of her face. So I said, sweetie, did you eat your candy? She's like, no, I didn't eat anything. I'm like, what's in your mouth right now? Like 18 Jolly Ranchers come out. I'm like, give me the bag of candy. So she, so she gives me the bag of candy and instantly she grabbed a hold of me. She hugged me. She looked up into my eyes. Daddy, I'm sorry I ate my candy. She even formed a tear, like the tear like formed up and rolled down her cheek. I'm like, you are just like your mother. You're so good. <laughs> I'm like, doesn't matter, sit down. So I put the candy on the kitchen countertop. We start eating dinner. She sits right next to me. She's just right here. She was petting my arm. Daddy, daddy, right? I'm like, sweetie, come on. And then we're midway through the meal. She goes, daddy, after dinner, can I have my bag of candy back? I said, no, because you disobeyed me. Then she just switched. It was like, chick, chick. she goes, then fine, I will grab it off the counter. I'm like, what? Who are you? What in the world just happened? I can't believe you were like tearing up and now you're like, I'm taking it. And so I don't know why I did this to this day because normally I don't engage my kids like this, but I'm like, then I'll put it up higher on top of the kitchen countertop. Then I will grab a chair. I will drag it over to that counter. I will climb up and get my candy. I'm like, what? No, you will go to bed. Then I'll wait for you to fall asleep. And I will come down at night and I will find my candy and get it. I was like, I can't believe you. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Right? She wasn't sorry that she had disobeyed me. She was sorry that she had got caught and she did not like the repercussions. I think that's Judas. When you look at his reaction and his response, he's sorry things turned out the way that they did. But he's not sorry that he's the kind of person that could betray Jesus. Peter, when he weeps bitterly, he's sorry that he's the kind of man that could have done that to Jesus, someone he loves. He just tore up godly sorrow, repentant. That's the difference. He's saying, change me. I don't wanna be that kind of person. Secondly, I think this is huge. Peter's able to forget his failure. He is now, just weeks after he did this, 
He's standing up in the middle of these people, 120, all of them know what, he, what he's done. I mean, the worst failure in the room and he stands up and starts to lead. Would you do that? Or would you be more like, you know, maybe I should just kind of ease back into my position of leadership and kind of wait till the storm blows over a little bit because, you know, people, I don't know what they're thinking about me and not Peter. He's up leading again. All right, let's do this. this is what, you know, I got to talk. That's amazing to me. I think Peter truly understood what forgiveness means. He got Philippians chapter three that says, I put that stuff behind me. And now I reach forward for the high mark that Jesus has on my life. Yeah, that humbled me and humble is a good thing. He writes about it in 1 Peter chapter five. Like that's a really good thing. But you know what? I'm not gonna be stuck in regret because he got forgiveness. In John 21, Jesus comes back to him. And three times Jesus says, do you love me? Three times he is restored. And I think Peter got, I am forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm not holding that burden anymore. Like Pilgrim's Progress. That thing's gone, man. I've been set free. I'm forgiven. Forget that. I'm gonna lead again. Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus in your own life? I think so many people carry around a burden of regret and guilt that really sidetracks them and sidelines them from what God has for them. Where they feel ashamed or regretful or guilt, they're like, no, I can't say that, no, you know, I'm a blow. They don't, you don't understand forgiveness then. You don't understand that the Bible says, though your sins are like scarlet, they're going to be white as snow. You don't understand what it means when Jesus, God says, I'm gonna put your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what I'm gonna do for you, right? We don't realize that. I think Peter actually got that. So he's like, hey, man, that's gone. I don't care. I'm, that's, that's not who I wanna be. And praise the dude for the gospel that Jesus is gonna change me into something better. So I'm gonna stand up right now and I'm going to lead. I love that. Find out what forgiveness means if you struggle, struggle with guilt. If you're constantly thinking about things that you blew it in, find out about Jesus' forgiveness. Read over John 21. See how kind and how Jesus restores Peter to his right position. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And that's exactly what he's doing right here. Brilliant. And then thirdly, I think ultimately, they had different loves. And that's really the problem. Judas loved money. We know that John tells us he stole from the bag. He was the bag carrier, but he was taking some money for himself. And so when it came down to it, hey, I can make 30 pieces of silver off this deal. Okay, done. His love of money is what led him to betray Jesus. I think Peter loved Jesus because on the night that he denies, what does he say right before that? Jesus, I'll die for you. No, you won't. You can deny me three times. And then what does he do in the garden? He pulls out his sword, right? He really, really loved Jesus. He blew it though. But when Jesus comes back to him in John 21 and Peter's out fishing and he sees Jesus on the shore, what does Peter do? Jumps in the lake and swims across it. I love that. This Valentine's, love doesn't mean you won't make a mistake. Love means when you do, you'll swim a lake to make it right. That's love. 
Peter loved Jesus. He's like, I'll swim this lake because I love you. So I think that's ultimately the big thing. Love of money, roots of all kinds of evil. Love of Jesus, he's restored and made right. Now there's one final note. If you read commentaries or stuff on Judas, the other side of the coin, in verse 19, it tells us, verse 18 and 19, that he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, right? So it would appear that his death here is like he jumped off a cliff or something, and then he splits open. But in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, it tells us that he hung himself. So there are people like, look, the Bible doesn't match up here. What's the deal with that? Okay, so I think they actually harmonize super well. Um, and here's what, how. If you hung yourself on a tree and you were there for a day or two and the rope breaks or the branch breaks or something and you fall on the ground, what would happen to you at that point? You would burst open. But if you just jumped off a cliff and you were alive, would you burst open? No, because your body is too intact. It's too healthy. It really would take a day or two for your body to kind of break down to then fall apart, right? I'll give you my best example of this. Yeah. You'll love it. It's Valentine's Day. You will so love it. You will thank me. You will write me cards with hearts on it. <laughs> so my study for a long time was called the rat shed before I remodeled it because there was some, it's an existing structure, been there since I don't know when. It was on the, you know, it's before they did permits, essentially. It's been there that long. So because of that, there was ways rats could get in up in the attic above and I could just hear them around there screwing around, like, you know, fighting. You'd hear them fighting and stuff. So I started putting traps up there. And then I'd be like studying away, I'd hear this, snap. I'm like, hey, got one. So normally I'd go immediately get the rat, pull it out, grab it by its tail and just float, throw it back into the woods. And never once, probably 20 or 30 rats, when I threw them back there, did they ever bust open? They just bounced and, you know, that was it. Decomposed or ate or whatever happened with them, right? So, but one morning, it was a Friday morning, July, I hear snap. Like, oh, there's one. And something happened at an appointment or something and I didn't take care of it. I forgot about it till the next morning. I come in, I could smell it. The whole thing smelled like a decomposing rat. So I'm like, oh, I gotta get that out. So I go up in the attic, I get the trap, I bring it out, I open the trap up, I grab him by the tail and I go to throw him in the woods. And because he decomposed, the skin on his tail just like came right off. And then he just nosedived into the ground headlong and he burst asunder and his guts came out. I'm like, wow, that's Acts chapter one right there. How brilliant is that? So then I'm like, well, this is kind of gross. Like it's right here in my lawn because he didn't make it out in the woods. So I need to go get a shovel. So I go get a shovel. I come back, it's gone. And my dog is licking her chops. Yeah, uh-huh. I never, never petted my dog after that. I'm like, yuck, you are a disgusting creature. Dogs, man. Okay, so there's my illustration. Harmonized. Matthew 27, Acts 1 harmonized. So I, I really believe that's what happened. He hung himself. Day or two later, he's marinated. His body is decomposing. It's gotten soft. He falls like that rat and he burst asunder. So I don't think it's a problem at all. Um, 
You probably have a problem with that illustration, but I think it's brilliant. It was a gift from God. Verse 20. So now Peter's kind of caught, or Luke rather, has caught us up on this backstory. And we get back to what Peter's saying. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must come with us as a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, <coughs> and <coughs> Matthias, and they prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Notice, really, Judas is made accountable for this. He did this. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay. So, I love Peter. Here you're in a 10-day prayer meeting. And at some point, Peter just is like, okay, I can't pray anymore. I gotta preach. I gotta stand up, start talking about the Bible. I gotta do something. Like, I can't pray anymore. Like, that feels just like me. I'd be like, ah, let's do something else. So he does that. And here's, here's what I really love about Peter. His love of scripture. He would not have a Bible to open up and look at. That was kept in the temple. A scroll, just one scroll would be a year's wage. So he has memorized these scriptures, the Spirit's bringing them to his memory, and he begins to preach about this was what needs to happen. If you decide to leave Edgewater and go to another church or you move somewhere, please find a church where it's somewhere like Peter, where they are committed to the authority of scripture. Notice he says, it must come to pass. Scripture must be fulfilled. This is God's word. It will come to pass. It will happen. He is committed to the authority of scripture. He knows Psalm 138 verse two that says, God keeps his word above his very name. That's how important God's word is. I love that. He doesn't take a poll to figure out what to do here. He doesn't look at some other source. He turns directly to scripture. Love that. I think too often, there are certain kinds of churches where there's this commitment to like, I want, we want God's spirit, we want God's spirit to move, but there's not the equal commitment to scripture. And if you have only a commitment to God's spirit and not to God's scripture, it gets dangerous. Strange things happen. I'll take it. It's a water. And if you know the Bible, there is a direct link between the spirit and scripture. Thank you, Sean Logue. And it begins in the very first verses of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, the spirit hovered over the waters and then God's word 
spoke and creation happens. So right there you have this, this dynamic that I think you can follow actually throughout the entire Bible. Ephesians 6, 17 says this, talking about the armor that we have, taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our one offensive weapon, everything else defensive to protect you, our one offensive weapon is what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's God's word. Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.21 that the prophets who prophesied and spoke and wrote the Old Testament, they were all moved by the Holy Spirit, right? So there's this linkage throughout scripture. You cannot have the power of the Spirit without knowing scripture, their hand in hand. Here's the mistake that I think they make. One second. They try to corner God, don't they? Okay, we know scripture says this. We know this is supposed to happen. In fact, I think Peter also know what, knew what Jesus said to him in Matthew 19, 28, where he goes, you 12 are gonna sit on thrones ruling with me in the new kingdom. It's called the renewal of all things, the palingenesia, what Jesus speaks about in the kingdom. When the palingenesia takes place, you're gonna be on these 12 thrones with me. So Peter knows, hey, we're missing a throne right now. And 12 is a really important number in the Bible. So he knows all this, he's put it all together. He's like, we know this is supposed to take place. So let's do it now. So they say, God, who is it? Is it Barsabbas or is it Matthias? Who is it? It reminds me of my son, Myron, who this week came to me and was like, daddy, um, I lose my Legos. And they stopped. He goes, daddy, is it lose it or lost it? Which one is it? I'm like, it's neither, bro. No, dad, which one is it? Is it lose it or lost it? I'm like, it's just lost. No, dad, when you're talking about you, when you lost it something, is it lost? I'm like, okay, forget it. Whatever you want to be, bud, right? It's like the same thing. Like, you're, which one is it? It's neither of those. No, dad, I mean, I'm trying to tell you. Past tense, how do you say past tense? Kind of like that. Like, which one is it, God? Tell us. I think God would say, it's neither. You can't corner God. Moses tried. The people wanted meat. And Moses is told by God, okay, give him some meat. He's like, well, how in the world do I do that? Do I kill all the cows? Or do I fish all the fish out of the sea? And what's God's answer to him? Is my arm short? Do you think I don't have resources that you don't know about? Neither, bud. Right? You think it's surf or turf, it's not. And it, and it says in the Bible that he made a great wind blow and it blew in all these pigeons and all these pigeons come in and everyone's grabbing pigeons and they're eating them raw, right? And that comes out their nose. You know the story? Read it, it's brilliant. I've seen all kinds of things come out of noses, milk and Pepsi and everything with kids. I've never seen raw quail meat. I think I would go vegan and start driving a Prius. That'd be it. I'm like, I'm over this thing. Right? It's God saying, look, I've got resources you don't even know about. I think so often we think, God, is it this one, this thing or that thing? And God's like, neither, neither. But they get super impatient and they will not wait. And I think what's interesting to me is they choose these two guys, you never hear of them again, but in that same room is Jude and James, two guys that go huge in the Bible. 
authors of books in the Bible. James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I think when we start giving options to God, what happens is we begin to overlook like the stuff that actually God wants. We become like, like Samuel anointing David, right? Well, overlooking David. And God says, hey, don't judge that way because you look at outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And because they do this, Paul, I believe the one that God had chosen, faces an uphill battle over and over to be accepted. Like he's always gonna have to argue his case. Like, "Ah, I know, I know, I know. But listen, I'm an apostle. Read 2 Corinthians 12, 11. He's like, I'm not behind these apostles in any way. I mean, come on, I'm, I'm writing the Bible. I'm doing miracles. People are getting saved. I'm, I saw the resurrected Jesus. I mean, really, I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle. No, you're not. Like, it's amazing. The church he founds is like questioning his apostleship. He faces this uphill battle because of it. Because haste always leads to waste. One of the greatest scriptures in the Bible to commit to memory and to live to me is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all, not some, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. They need a little bit of patience, like 15 years, because that's when Paul gets brought up at the right time to expand the gospel into the world. So Acts chapter one ends with 120 in prayer, in unity, Scripture is being preached. They have a leader named Peter. It's all there, right? And boom, chapter two happens. So we can read chapter one and be like, that's the ingredients for Pentecost. Let's go get an upper room. Let's get 120 people. Let's stay there for 10 days. And then we're gonna get it too. There are people that do that. And I think it's wrong. Chapter two is telling us what happened and it's giving us the way God works. But I think it's always wrong to try to replicate the past because what we're called to do is we're to write the present. And I would say that's W-R-I-T-E and R-I-G-H-T. We're here to write the present. And what God is gonna do with us today will have always similarities to what God has done in the past, but there'll always be something new. There'll always be a new way that God's working and contextualizing it for us today. And where we fail over and over is this, when we try to formulize God. 120, 10 days, prayer, need a Peter leader, boom. You'll never formulize God. I was talking with a doorkeeper, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, about being led by God's spirit. I said, there's nothing harder to me. There's nothing harder to be, than being led by God's spirit, right? So, Um, We'll get to Acts chapter three, where Peter and John go into the temple and they heal this guy that was born lame and that his crew had been putting him at the gate beautiful for 40 years. Guess who had walked by him and didn't heal him? Jesus. I said, that's one of the most fascinating stories to me, right? Why didn't Jesus heal him? Because he needed him for Acts chapter three, you'll see. That's why. You gotta wait, bud. You're gonna be real important in my plan in Acts chapter three. You gotta wait. And sometimes I think we're called just walk by people. And other times, like Peter and John, we're called to stop 
and fix our eyes intently on somebody and give what we have. But you only know by being led by God's spirit. And there's nothing harder than being led by God's spirit because you will not formulize it. Because God doesn't want formulas. God wants friends. And that's what he's called us into. And friends talk to each other and pray and know each other and get each other's heart and start to almost know like, oh, this is the way it's to be. And that's what God's after. So we will never do Acts chapter one again, but we can do Acts 29 right now. We're right in the present. So Jesus, may we be a people who are okay with your time frame. Whether it's waiting 10 days for Pentecost or 15 years for Paul, may we be okay with your time frame. I pray for the city that we belong to, the church that we come to, the people that we are connected to, Lord. I pray that we would be an eclectic mix, the right mix, the right blend, Lord, for areas that we're strong for other people and areas where others are strong for us. I pray that this church, like these 120 that we've read about, I pray that we would be unified and our love for you and for each other. I pray that we be those that are quick to cast our cares upon you, to pray, quick to listen. I pray that we would better know how to be guided by your spirit, how to feel the wind, how to hear the whisper. Would you help us in that, Lord? And may we be sent out from here into the workplace, the kingdom, Grants Pass, Josephine County. And may we be useful to you, I pray, this week. So go with us, I ask. Use us, I pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen.